Lee Israel made her living telling other people's stories. It was something she did very well. But while she was great at writing about other people's lives, she never seemed interested in writing a story that was just hers, something brand new. It's ironic, then, that when Lee's career stalled, she made money by putting her words into others' mouths. She embellished their stories, told their secrets, and in doing so, she finally wrote a totally original story, one that was big enough to fill a book, a movie screen, and a podcast. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. Last week, we met Lee Israel, just as her life as a biographer was taking off. When one of her books flopped, Lee was left broke and desperate. But a series of fateful events led her to start forging letters from long-dead celebrities, netting her a modest income. That's where we'll pick up Lee's story today. She's enjoying newfound success as an accidental literary forger and, quite frankly, having a whale of a time doing so. But of course, the good times never last. And the second half of Lee's story involves a grand jury, the FBI, and just a touch of blackmail. Stay with us. Lee Israel had a fondness for Noel Coward, the English playwright and performer. It was probably his wit that drew her in, and before long, she was on a first-name basis with him. In all, she wrote over 150 letters from Noel, using his published diaries for inspiration. She took note of his annoyance for actresses forgetting their lines in his plays, his bewilderment at the entire concept of a visit to Fire Island, which was a hotspot for gay vacationers even in 1963, and his fondness for his friend Marlena Dietrich. Then she sat down to make up things for Noel to say, gossipy, funny observations about his work, his loves, and his life. But she couldn't type the letters out on just any paper. No, she needed something more authentic looking, something to fool even a seasoned autograph dealer. So the lifelong New Yorker paid a visit to a print shop in Manhattan's West Twenties and had dozens of copies of Noel's letterhead made. Then, after feeding the paper into the typewriter she bought especially for Noel, Lee sat down to type. Each paragraph began with an indentation of 13 spaces. That was important. Any collector or dealer worth their salt knew that about Noel. Then, between each sentence, another five spaces. It was almost as important to nail the idiosyncratic formatting as it was to replicate the playwright's signature. Unfortunately, the typewriter couldn't do the heavy lifting there. That was all down to the steadiness of Lee's hand and her improvised light table. The swooping N was the really tricky part, and she never really felt like she got it right. For that reason, she only ever signed his first name. Noel's full, flamboyant autograph was far beyond her skills. 
Luckily, Lee's way with words was more than enough to distract from her wobbly penmanship. By the time she was writing for him, she'd learned that more scandalous content fetched a higher price, so she tailored her work accordingly. That kind of attention to detail paid off. Her Noel Coward letters could reach as much as $200 a piece. And when you're as broke as Lee was in the early 1990s, that was a hell of a lot of money. Of course, Noel was just one of Lee's favorites. Dorothy Parker was her pet. Louise Brooks was a fabulous creature. And Edna Ferber rounded out the special circle. They were almost like voices in her head, special friends she could call up to have a conversation. Except that chat wasn't with Lee. It was with a faceless, fictional addressee. Thoughtful Boy, or Sweet Richard, or to the imaginary Cousin Sydney. They all got letters from Lee's famous friends. And then, with the ink on the signatures barely dry, Lee hustled the notes to dealers around Manhattan. Those dealers were, for the most part, fooled by Lee's forgeries. She figured that if those self-proclaimed experts were tricked by the likes of her, then they deserved to be swindled, especially when they sold her letters to private collectors at a considerable profit. It was easy for Lee to rationalize. No one was really getting hurt. Before we continue with Lee's psychology, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we've done a lot of research for this show. Based on what we know about Lee Israel, it seems fair to say she was using several techniques of neutralization to justify her actions. If you're not familiar with the concept, it's basically a theory that suggests criminals can neutralize their usual values that might otherwise stop them from doing crime. Sociologists David Matza and Gresham Sykes outlined five different techniques that people can use to explain away any wrongdoing. In Lee's case, she was guilty of denial of responsibility, which essentially means that she felt forced into crime by her circumstances. She was down, she was out, and she had no other options. Denial of the victim is the belief that whoever was wronged was asking for it. And denial of injury is when you think a crime is harmless. That's three out of five bells that Lee's actions rung. But no matter what she thought, Lee's crimes were hardly victimless. A true victimless crime is one where no one is injured in any way. For example, solicitation or trespassing. But in this case, Lee's victims were the people she sold to, or the people they sold to. In the here and now, all of them believed that Lee's forgeries were the real deal. But eventually, the truth was sure to come out. And when it did, someone was going to be left with a worthless piece of paper, weren't they? Not that Lee was worried about that just then. She had plenty more work to do. And as much fun as it was to pretend to be Noel Coward, selling too many of his letters would definitely draw suspicions. So she branched out. Lee decided to try her hand at being Lillian Hellman, a playwright and author. The two had exchanged letters while Lee wrote her first book about Tallulah Bankhead. Mostly the letters had been rejections of Lee's request for information about Bankhead, who Hellman had known. Now, Lee rehashed those missives, writing them as if recounting the story to the fictional Cousin Sidney. Hellman was a difficult woman, Lee noted, 
But her signature? That was easy, almost begging to be forged. And on and on she went, writing letters from more celebrities and literary giants, about 30 in all, selling them to dealers around the U.S. It seemed the collector community couldn't get enough of Lee's forgeries. They were too good to be true. That said, they weren't perfect, at least not in Lee's eyes. Even in her memoir, Lee found flaws in her work. There was an errant comma in a Noel Coward that if she were to do it all over again, she would have left out. But that wasn't the only problem with Lee's forgeries. She was always careful, but she was no expert. Not in this. And while some of the dealers she sold to accepted her forgeries as the real deal, others were more discerning. For a while, Lee used watermarked stationery for her letters, the ones from the more affluent personalities. She figured that they were rich and wouldn't have had any problems making that known. But one day, a West Coast dealer returned a batch of Lillian Hellman letters to Lee without explanation. This dealer had been eager to buy the letters, so Lee was perplexed. Trying to understand the problem, she reached out to the manufacturer who made that particular batch of watermarked paper. It turned out it had been made after the date Lee had put on the letter. The watermark she'd been counting on to bolster her credibility actually tripped her up. At least, that's what she guessed. She never heard from that dealer again, and she didn't want to find out for sure, so she decided that the watermark ploy was too risky and stopped. That decision also caused Lee some grief, albeit with just one other dealer. When Lee presented them with one of her Hellman letters, they held the document up to the light to check for the watermark, but there wasn't one. The problem with that was that Lillian Hellman was notorious for overspending on luxuries. It just wouldn't make sense for her to have used ordinary paper. However, even as Lee held her breath, the dealer shrugged off their concerns. They decided that Hellman must have been out of her nicer stationery and had used simpler copies that day. Lee let out a sigh of relief. She was in the clear this time. And though the close calls might have sent you or I scurrying away from the autograph industry altogether, Lee still needed to pay rent. So she continued with her scheme, even as one of the dealers she worked with called her out. This man, who we'll call Charles, was around 60 and friendly with Lee. He bought some of her best work and sold it on to other dealers. Crucially, he'd also read Lee's published books, so he was familiar with her voice. That might be why one day, after she handed him one of her Dorothy Parker letters, he started laughing uncontrollably. When he finished reading the letter, Charles shook his head, looked Lee in the eye, and said, you're good, but you're not this good. Coming up, a touch of blackmail forces Lee to switch to a new scheme. This is Story Booth Daily. Tune into this new podcast for your daily fix of real life stories from real people around the world. We've received thousands of stories that we want to share with you, from talking about being ghosted or realizing that being popular isn't all that great sometimes. No topic is off the table. This is a podcast that's not only for you, but by you. Story Booth Daily premieres November 8th, so be sure to check us out Monday through Friday. Story Booth Daily is a wheelhouse and Spotify original from Parcast.
Now back to our story. After a short, profitable run of successes with her forgeries, Lee Israel was on the back foot again. No one had outright accused her of wrongdoing, but at least one of her regular buyers, Charles, seemed to have sniffed out her scheme. And he wasn't the only one. He told Lee that he'd been discussing her letters with another New York autograph dealer. Perhaps not wanting to give up the money her work made for them, the two experts came to an agreement. Lee's letters were real if they said they were. So it seemed that at least some of Lee's contacts were in on the joke, and they were willing to play along as long as it made them money. In that way, it seems these dealers were playing into the greater fool theory, which is typically used when talking about investments. The greater fool is a person who will pay a higher price than something is worth under the assumption that they can profit from that thing down the line. It applies to stocks, cryptocurrency, even art. But in this story, we can apply it to the people trading in Lee's forgeries. At least some of the professional dealers knew the letters weren't technically worth the paper they were printed on, but by continuing to pay Lee for them, they were betting there would be someone else down the line willing to pay even more. So they paid Lee, marked up her letters, and sold them with certificates of authenticity, guaranteeing they were the real deal. Of course, not all of the dealers were in on the grift, but it didn't take long for them to find out. Things got dicey when one of Lee's Noel Cowards made its way to the West Coast, where it was bought by someone who'd known the playwright personally. And here's where Lee's meticulous research tripped her up. Lee had used Noel's published diaries to find content for her forgeries. Well, working with such private details was a double-edged sword. While the diaries provided her with plenty of authentic, verifiable information about Noel, it was also, well, private. Lee's letters openly referenced the playwright's sexuality, which certainly made the letters more valuable. But Noel lived in a time when being gay was not only a criminal offense, but one that could have landed him in jail. So he was never that open. Not even in letters to friends, it seems. So when one of those friends came across one of Lee's letters, he knew Noel hadn't written it. And word spread quickly. By the time news of the scandal reached her, Lee Israel was already persona non grata in the Californian autograph trading circle. All of a sudden, things turned against Lee in a big way. One West Coast dealer visited memorabilia shows, moving from booth to booth and pointing out Lee's work. With each jab of his finger, he'd declare, fake, fake, fake. Around the same time, radio commentators and newspaper columnists hinted at trouble brewing in the autograph collector community. There were rumbles about Louise Brooks and Dorothy Parker. There were fakes circulating. And that was all but confirmed when Lee got a message from one of her regular customers, a man named Alan Weiner. He wanted to meet with her as soon as possible. Alan had once asked Lee to sell him all of her Dorothy Parker letters so he could corner the market. So she went home and spent two days writing about eight letters, which delighted him. Now, though, he didn't sound so pleased. Worried but trying to play it cool, Lee called Alan back and arranged to meet him at a bar later that day. 
There, in whispers that didn't carry in the empty establishment, he told her that he'd been called to testify in front of a New York State grand jury that was convening to target Lee. Perhaps wanting to play on Lee's fears, Allen said that his testimony would be critical to the case, but he would refuse the summons if she paid him $5,000. It was only fair, he reasoned. It was what he would have made on the fake Dorothy Parkers she'd sold him. Well, what choice did she have? Thinking quickly, Lee told Alan that she was expecting a royalty check any day and asked if he could give her some time to get the money to him. He agreed to wait and left her alone at the bar. The thing was, Lee wasn't expecting a royalty check. She hadn't seen one for years. And with a grand jury convening to hear a case against her, there was no way Lee could continue to peddle her forgeries in New York. But even as the walls seemed to close in on Lee, a fortuitous reconnection changed everything. An old acquaintance, Jack Hawk, wrote Lee a letter from prison, A grifter by nature and always happy to bend the truth to suit his own fantasies, Jack had met Lee when he was a bartender. They'd been good friends for a few years, and he'd even bought the film rights to her second biography, Kill Gallon. Though Jack hadn't been a successful producer for the project, Lee had taken a shine to him and took him under her wing. She protected him against some of his less intelligent friends, as well as his own bad decisions. But in a twist towards the ironic, Lee cut Jack off when she found out he was still shopping her book around after his option expired. He forged her signature on paperwork to do so, which felt like an incredible violation at the time. Now, though, Lee needed a friend with questionable morals, so Jack Hawk's release from prison came at just the right time. Lee took Jack out to lunch and told him what she'd been doing and that she needed to change the game. She couldn't show her face in the industry and people were going to be on the lookout for fakes, but she had a new plan. She explained that instead of creating entirely new letters, she was going to copy existing ones. She'd visit libraries and carefully duplicate the valuable letters held in their private collections. The idea was that she'd replace the original with her fake, then Jack would sell the authentic document to a dealer. By selling rarer, indisputably real letters, Lee could demand a higher price, which would help her raise the five grand she needed to pay Alan Weiner for his silence. Even splitting the money with Jack, it wouldn't take her long to get the blackmail squared away, and then the rest was pure profit. Well. Jack agreed without any hesitation, and Lee got to work straight away. We should recognize that this was a big jump up from what Lee had been doing up until now. Before, she was just creating forgeries to make a few extra bucks, harmless for the most part. But now, this new scheme was outright theft, and Lee definitely knew there was a big difference. Almost from the moment she hatched the scheme, Lee was afraid of getting caught something she never seemed to worry about with her original forgeries. This, she knew, was wrong, but still she felt she had no other choice, so she hatched a plan. 
the first thing she needed was a way into the university libraries where the prized letters waited under lock and key. So Lee doctored an old contract, removing the date and title of her Estee Lauder book, and replaced it with the name of her proposed fake book, Authors and Alcoholism. It was the perfect title. So many literary figures were fond of a tipple or two, so it cast a wide, generic net. That was her pass in. She simply had to show the contract as proof that she was working on a book with the backing of a bona fide publisher, and libraries were happy to open their doors. Early on in the scheme, Lee stayed close to home in Manhattan. Around February of 1992, she visited the Columbia University Division of Rare Books and the New York Public Library's Berg Collection. For her initial visits, she acted like she was taking notes, but really she was casing the joint. She needed to look for any flaws in her plan, work out how tight security was, and whether she would be watched. Once she'd gotten the lay of the land, it was on to the next step. She'd ask for a box of materials relating to a particular author and comb through it for any letters. Once she found what she was looking for, she had to carefully assess them. To pull the plan off, Lee needed some key ingredients. Letters already on fairly plain paper, something that was typed, and a signature that was simple. Once she found two or three that seemed promising, she'd lay them carefully in front of her and copy them exactly, taking careful note of punctuation, spacing, typeface, paper size, the lot. Then, with her heart just about leaping out of her chest, she'd place her own notepaper over the letter and trace the autograph. With that taken care of, Lee returned home to replicate the letter as closely as she could using one of her many typewriters and her makeshift light box. The following day, she could return to the library, ask for the same box she'd been working with, and surreptitiously make the switch. Like in her early days of letter thievery, Lee placed the real McCoys inside her shoe before returning the box of artifacts to the librarian, who performed a quick check that nothing was missing. Then, not waiting around to be found out, Lee made her exit, ready to hand off the real letter to Jack. Once she'd gotten her act down pat, Lee started to venture further afield to find more treasures. Between February and July of 1992, she visited libraries at Yale, Penn State, Harvard, Syracuse, Cornell, and Princeton. She also made a special trip to the Hargret Library in Athens, Georgia, to pick up some letters by novelist Margaret Mitchell. Why her? Her signature was easy to copy, and collectors loved her. But the curator at the Hargret turned up their nose at Lee's proposed book title. They told her that Margaret Mitchell didn't have a drinking problem. Quick on her feet, Lee said she was also looking into, quote, the writers who had managed to maintain their sobriety in a field littered with cirrhotic livers. The ruse worked but Lee couldn't smooth over every hiccup so easily. On a trip to Princeton, she pulled off her usual switcheroo without a hitch, but that day she decided not to put the bona fide letters into her shoe and tuck them into her bag instead. Security at that particular library was fairly lax, she'd decided. But of course, when Lee got to the front desk, the librarian on duty seemed ready and enthusiastic to check Lee's things. 
Playing the role of a clumsy, forgetful author, Lee said that she'd forgotten to copy down some important dates. She'd need to take another look at the box. Lee carefully replaced the pilfered documents and hid her forgeries in a random book on a shelf. She didn't want to risk the librarian finding them either. But then, of course, the librarian didn't search Lee's things at all. They simply waved her through, bringing the heart-stopping episode to a close. Even through all these close calls, Lee still had bills to pay, so she handed each of the valuable letters to Jack, and he was doing pretty well right out of the gate. He never told Lee just what stories he fed to the dealers he sold to, but she didn't much care. The money was coming in just the same. It was good money, too. When he told Lee what he was going to ask for one of the letters, she usually thought it was too high, that he'd never get it. But he always did. In a satisfying twist, one of Jack's best customers turned out to be Alan Weiner. He happily bought anything that Jack brought him, unaware that he was paying his own blackmail bill in the process. All told, it was a tidy little scheme that netted the two friends a healthy profit. But the longer it dragged on, the more Lee got anxious about being caught. She had dreams that she was on a prison transport bus full of the people whose letters she'd been forging. Noel Coward drove while the celebrities talked about how bad Lee's impressions of them were. Dorothy Parker said her use of commas reminded her of a serial killer. Noel told her that despite what people say, imitation is not flattering. And Edna Ferber complained about the lack of watermarks on her letters. All of this took place while Lee was driven closer and closer to a prison cell. It was, on the whole, a specific kind of nightmare and one that could never actually come true. But it was inspired by Lee's anxiety over someone finding her out again. And sadly for Lee, that day was fast approaching. Coming up, Lee's scheme finally unravels. Now the end of our story. In the early half of 1992, 52-year-old Lee Israel's scheme with her friend Jack Hawk was running as smoothly as could be expected. Sure, there were occasional hiccups and close calls, but nothing they couldn't weather together. That is, until the money became an issue. One day after doing a deal, Jack handed Lee $750, her half of the money. But something that day nagged at her. Perhaps because she knew Jack was a grifter at heart, she asked to see the rest of the money. Sheepishly, Jack handed her his half. He'd kept an extra $500 for himself. Floundering before Lee's steely gaze, Jack suggested that perhaps Alan Weiner, the dealer, had given him too much money by mistake. Jack never intended to short Lee. But Lee wasn't buying it. She'd dealt with Alan many times, and she knew how fastidious he was about money. So from that day on, they changed things up. Lee started accompanying Jack on his deals. She couldn't safely show her face anywhere near the stores he sold at, but she'd wait for him at a bar or restaurant nearby. She told him to bring the money straight to her once the deal was done, and they could split it up together. 
It might have seemed like something had broken between the two friends, but we should make it clear that Lee genuinely cared for Jack. He was one of the few people she ever seemed to like. A case in point, he was living with AIDS, and one day he asked if he could take a nap in her apartment. Then he curled up on the floor, rather than dignify her floral orange couch with his presence, and fell asleep. Worried, Lee felt Jack's forehead, then put a thermometer in his mouth. It read 104. She woke him up and rushed him to the nearest hospital, where he stayed for the next week. At the end of his stay, Lee arrived to pick him up and noticed that he wasn't dressed for the winter weather outside. Typical Jack, she thought, no sense for dollars. So as they made their way home, Lee stopped at a street vendor stand and bought a cashmere scarf. Violets for your furs, she said, winding the scarf around his neck. It was them against the world, two outcasts doing what they could to get by. But even as he got sicker, Jack didn't lose his industrious spirit. On a trip to Baltimore, he visited a library where he found a letter from Edgar Allan Poe. On the open market, it probably could have pulled in about 14 grand. So when he got back to New York, Jack told Lee that she should steal it. But Lee knew the letter was too high profile and too valuable. A letter like that would invite scrutiny, which was not what they needed. But it was already too late. The first sign that something was wrong appeared early in the summer of 1992, when one of Jack's regular dealers turned down an offer to show him some valuable letters. In Lee's estimation, that was highly unusual. The dealers she knew were always eager to get their hands on something special. The jig was well and truly up. It's just that Lee didn't know it yet. You see, by that stage, some of the more curious, discerning dealers had raised concerns about the letters Jack was bringing to them. Not all of them were just in it for the money, and the thought of buying and selling stolen artifacts might have made them uneasy. One in particular decided to call the FBI, who started looking into the story, setting up the endgame. On July 27, 1992, Lee said goodbye to Jack as he headed to see a buyer. As usual, she headed to a nearby deli to wait for him, but he never showed. She waited for over an hour and eventually decided that he must have been confused and headed back to her apartment. She paid her bill and shuffled out of the restaurant. But as she was leaving, Lee was accosted by two FBI agents. This was it the moment she'd dreaded. The agents told her that they knew all about what she'd been doing. They'd spoken to Jack, as well as some of their autograph dealers. Jack had already given them the names of some colleges Lee had visited, dashing any hope she had of denying the accusations. Not only that, the agents told Lee that Jack had asked that she not contact or harass him in any way. So much for them against the world. Likely because hers wasn't a dangerous crime, the agents didn't arrest Lee. They just wanted to talk, for now. After the quick, bracing chat, Lee told the agents that she was going to get a lawyer before she said anything and rushed home. Once again, it was time to get to work. Except this time, Lee wasn't creating. She was set to destroy. 
With a full bottle of scotch by her side, Lee took to her notes with a pair of scissors. She also shredded what remained of her custom forging stationery. Then she bundled the lot into trash bags, which she scattered throughout her apartment building, where it blended in with her neighbor's household garbage. Next, and much harder to get rid of, were her typewriters. There were too many to keep in her small apartment, so Lee had been storing them in a building on Amsterdam Avenue. Now she had to schlep over there, where they waited, stacked in neat rows. One by one, Lee seized the incriminating machines and dumped them into various trash cans on the street outside, all while keeping an eye out in case she was being watched. That same evening, the FBI agents appeared at Lee's door to serve her a subpoena. She was to produce documents before a federal grand jury in a few days' time. The order came with explicit instructions that she wasn't to destroy any evidence pertaining to the case. Well, it was too late for that. All the same, she was facing charges of conspiracy to transport stolen goods in interstate commerce, which was a Class D felony. Her earlier forgeries, the fabricated and embellished letters, weren't of concern to the feds. It was her latest scheme that caught their attention. With the case against her ironclad, Lee knew she had to find a lawyer. One prospect told her that she'd be getting 10 years in prison for her crimes and suggested they blame menopause for her actions. She didn't hire him. Instead, she went with one who agreed that pleading guilty was the only way to go, but reassured her that at the worst, she'd get a year or so. Even that sounded like a lot to Lee, but there was nothing for it. All there was left to do was wait and worry. While she cooled her heels, Lee happened to pass by a store with autographed letters in the window. With nothing better to do, Lee popped in and asked if they had anything by Dorothy Parker. And wouldn't you know it, the clerk presented her with a framed, typed letter, complete with signature, all Lee's own work. Lee had originally sold her creation for a hundred bucks, but the asking price on it now, twenty-five hundred. Until then, Lee didn't know just how much her dealers were making from the letters she'd sold them. And now, here she was, facing jail time, while others continued to profit from her work. Incensed and perhaps feeling a little mischievous, she went home and with one of her remaining typewriters, wrote up a letter to the offending autograph dealer. In it, she admonished the dealer for their greed and pointed out, quote, Poor, wayward Lee Israel received only $85 a pop. Was it Proudhon who said all property was theft? She signed it, Dorothy Parker. Then Lee put the letter in the mail to arrive at the store some 20 years after Parker died. Lee's letters vanished from the dealer's catalog soon after. By the time she had her day in court in June of 1993, the judge was kind to her. After delivering an apology, which she mostly meant, Lee was sentenced to five years probation and six months of house arrest. 
It was basically nothing, and because Lee didn't have an active phone line, she couldn't be given an ankle monitor to make sure she stayed home. She was also ordered to attend Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, but the closest she ever came was when she walked past a local chapter on her way to her favorite bar. Lee never did well with taking orders. As for Jack Hawk, her co-conspirator, he received three years of probation, but he didn't live long enough to complete the sentence. He died in October of 1994, another victim of the AIDS epidemic. As for Lee, well, she cooperated with the authorities to make sure all of the stolen letters were returned to their respective libraries. The ones she created herself, the Lillian Hellmans, Dorothy Parkers, and Louise Brooks, where they ended up is anyone's guess. At least two of Lee's Noel Cowards were included in a 2007 collection of the playwright's letters, under the assumption that they were the real deal. They were removed after the first printing. Understandably, Lee was quite proud of that accomplishment. She was proud of all her original forgeries, gleefully so, some might say. In fact, she considered them her very best work, which feels like a strange thing to say about your criminal enterprise. But it's hard to argue with her. The lead FBI investigator on her case called Lee brilliant. Even one of the dealers Lee hoodwinked admitted, she's really an excellent writer. She made the letters terrific. They were so terrific that in the years after her crimes came to light, some of the letters were sold with clear labels that they were Lee Israel forgeries. In a roundabout way, it was an echo of the success Lee enjoyed in her early career. Her words were critically lauded, if only treasured by a few. By Lee's estimation, she'd had to be better than her subjects. She had to be Noel Coward and a half, and the sheer joy that kind of literary jewel must have brought to collectors is priceless. The fact that it's fake shouldn't really matter, should it? If no one can tell the difference anyway, then what's the harm? At least, that was Lee's take on the whole affair, and it's a part of her enduring legacy as a talented, if untrustworthy, literary icon. In the title of her 2008 memoir, Lee quoted one of her Dorothy Parker letters asking the question, can you ever forgive me? But I suspect that Miss Israel didn't really want anyone's forgiveness, much like the words she put into Parker's mouth, they were facetious and rhetorical. No answer required. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a brand new story. For more information on Lee Israel, we found her memoir, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Memoirs of a Literary Forger, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Joel Callen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 
This is Story Booth Daily. Tune into this new podcast for your daily fix of real life stories from people around the world. Story Booth Daily premieres Monday, November 8th on Spotify. Story Booth Daily is a wheelhouse and Spotify original from Parcast.